Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. There is a computer scientist and statistician, a cellular and molecular biologist, an environmental ecologist, and an interdisciplinary scholar and writer who has written numerous books and articles about the history and culture forged by black Americans in the face of injustice. That's the work of Harvard University professor Imani Perry, who is one of 20 MacArthur Genius Fellows named this year. The award is an acknowledgment of the fellows' demonstrated talent in their disciplines and their current and future stature as leaders in their fields. Professor Imani Perry joins me now, one of four local fellows, part of our series, The Genius Next Door. Welcome to Under the Radar, Professor Imani Perry. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. Um, I like to start these conversations with describing for our listeners the work that brought you to the attention of the MacArthur Foundation. But I want to start out a bit differently with you because some of the work that you've been doing was already brought to the attention of others, including um, uh, last year when you won the 2022 National Book Award for nonfiction for your book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. Here you are uh, speaking um, at that ceremony. I write for my people. I write because we children of the lash-scarred, rope-choked, bullet-ridden, desecrated are still here, standing. I write for the field holler, the shout, the growl, the singer, the signer, and the signified. I write for the sinned against and the sanctifying. I write for the ones who clean the toilets and till the soil and walk the picket lines. For the hungry, the caged, the disregarded, the holding on, I write for you. I write because I love sentences and I love freedom more. Oh, I just love that, Imani. (laughs) That was so great. Congratulations on that award. Um, So that's a why, part of the why you do the work. Uh, Let's talk about um, more expansively the work that you do. You have um, many books, um, but let's talk about um, the kind of work um, that you focus on, the archival research, the reading, and the teaching. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I thank you so much for having me. It's, you know, it's, um, it's even, it's kind of emotional to, to hear that because it was such an intensely emotional moment and it was a culmination in some ways like receiving the call about the MacArthur Fellowship and so much of my work is, um, you know, it's quiet, it's slow work. I am in archives. I taught, I describe my work in part as haunting the past. I'm trying to train my attention on those who were disregarded in the past as a way of shaping our ethics for the present and the future. So it's sort of like trying to, you know, catch a hold of freedom dreams that have existed um, over the course of generations and shine, you know, train my gaze and shine a light on them. And so I'm, I'm in archives and in works of literature. I am in memoirs. I am in song. I am in, um, you know, in, in visual art. And so I, I move sort of, I'm sort of peripatetic, but I have that kind of common theme um, to to be looking for justice and also the beloved community and the, like the glimmers of that, right? What sustains people, what allows people to imagine freedom and uh, and how to tell stories about it. 
that we might find useful. That's that's sort of what what the work is. How do you get closer to justice? I know this is your mission uh, in the present by examining the past. I mean, I think we one is a sort of practical matter, right? We actually look to see how people not only held on, but were able to engage in transformation. Sometimes people ask me, so, you know, why do you believe transformation is possible? And I say, well, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and I, it is a very different place in 1972 than it was then in 2003, and certainly a different place. My life trajectory is different from that of my grandmother. There's still injustice, but um, there was a um, concerted struggle on the part of Black communities in the Deep South to reimagine the nation itself. And so, I, you know, so part of it is actually looking for example. I think another part is is looking for positive example of transformation. But another part is actually, you know, allowing us to see to to see the world um, in a different frame in ways that actually can excite our ethics for the present. And I, what I mean is that, you know, sometimes um, what seems plainly unjust from the past is very similar to what exists in the present. So sometimes when you look in the past and you can draw analogies to the present, it actually allows people to reimagine how they ought to live today. So, you know, so, so I think it's, there's a multiplicity of ways, but also, you know, our, our ethics are shaped by how we tell our stories. Um, and so I want to tell stories in a way that actually acknowledge everyone in our midst and the land itself as something meaningful and worthy. So I want to make sure my listeners understand that when you say archives, uh, that does mean, you know, some of the dusty shelves we might imagine. But you also physically take yourself to locations so that you can have the experience. Um, I was told you were in Little Rock, Arkansas, not long ago, just trying to viscerally feel, if you can, the 1957 racial mob violence at Central High School. Uh, talk a little bit more about just going to these places and how that helps in your work. Right. And that's, thank you so much, because that's a wonderful example. So I went with um, uh, Micah Broadnax and Jarvis Givens, the team that we together run the Black Teacher Archive at um, at Harvard University, which is archiving like records of Black teachers in the pre-desegregation context. And we went to Little Rock to do an interview of a veteran teacher who was in her 90s. But in the process of being there, we walked the streets of Little Rock. And one of the things that became clear is, so this wasn't even sort of an initially a direct part of my research, but it's it was a testament to why it's important to be someplace physically. So in the process of being there and walking the streets, we realized how close this um, you know, elder black woman lived to Central High and how 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 intimate the fabric of black and white communities were. So you could imagine she could hear the mob attacking black students for wanting to desegregate a high school from her home, right? And 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 it's really important, one, because you actually sort of get the the sensory experience of what kind of courage was required when you can imagine that the proximity of the terror, but it also is a lesson. People being close to each other, and it's an important lesson, I think, for people in New England that may not have the same perspective as Southerners, you can be close to people and still be committed to injustice, right? Intimacy doesn't mean fairness or decency necessarily. And so, you know, what something more is demanded of us 
beyond familiarity, right? The story of, you know, of slavery and Jim Crow is a story of familiarity and cruelty at the same time. Now, you mentioned you grew up in Alabama um, currently, just so we have the full background. Um, it, well, before that, you earned your J.D. and Ph.D. at Harvard in, in uh, 2000. And then now uh, you're a professor of women, gender, and sexuality and of African-American studies at Harvard. And you also have an appointment at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute. So you have a wide range of interests, I would say, and areas that you can um look at as a both a literary critic, a historian, and a, and a legal scholar. So having said all of that, I want you to go back and tell me what first inspired your interest in writing and what has sustained your interest, like go way back. So I actually, I was born in Alabama, but I was raised in Cambridge. We moved to Cambridge for my mother to go to graduate school. And we, and I would, was in this sort of frequent cycle of going back and forth summers between Chicago and Alabama, and then the school year and being in Massachusetts. And that is actually part of the answer to your question. I describe myself as someone who was kind of eternally homesick because my family is not a great migration family. Everybody is still overwhelmingly in the deep South, specifically in Alabama. There's a few people in Georgia, but when I was in Massachusetts and feeling a kind of homesickness for my people, one of the points of connection was literature. Um, It was this period of a kind of incredible blooming of Black women's literature in particular, lots of Black writers and Black feminists in Massachusetts who were telling stories of home. So I could go to bookstores and I'm reading the literature of you know, of Alice Walker, of J. California Cooper, of Toni Morrison, of June Jordan, and they're June Jordan, on and on, right? All of these Black women who are thinking about home and departure. And so falling in love with reading in general, I spent a lot of time reading because my mother was writing a dissertation, so I would spend hours reading, but also getting a way of sort of, through the literature I was reading, a way of capturing identity and where one fits into the world and the importance of our stories, particularly as Black women, that I was, I got so much access to that through reading. And of course, it made me want to become a writer and, you know, see, I could hear the resonance between the literature I was reading, you know, in for example, in, in, Mar- in uh, Margaret Walker's Jubilee story of her family and the voice of my grandmother, which I have cherished so deeply for my entire life. And so that's sort of the passion to, to write. Um, and then, you know, I, I was also invested in the life of the mind. So I, you know, I, I studied um, multiple areas. I went to grad school and law school. I started my career teaching law school. Then I taught at Princeton for 14 years in African-American studies. So I've sort of had this voraciousness of wanting to know and then wanting to share. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with interdisciplinary scholar and writer Imani Perry, one of 20 MacArthur Genius Grant Fellows, four local, named this year. She's part of our series, The Genius Next Door. Now, Imani, uh, a lot of your work has your own life stories as part of it. South to America certainly did. That's the book that you won the 2022 National Book Award for. Um, Breathe, I think about that that book that you wrote um, to your sons. 
And now you've written a dangerously high threshold for pain, which is an extremely personal story about how you've been living with lupus and grave disease. What made you decide to share this very personal story of your life? I have always rejected the idea of um, scholarly objectivity, right? So, you know, we, at least when I was coming through school, right, there, there was this idea that you would sort of, you, you tried to be objective as, as a scholar. And I never believed that that was possible or even ideal, that the goal is not object, objectivity, right? If, you, if you're gonna spend years on something, you actually care about it. You don't feel objectively about it, but you do wanna be rigorous. Right. And so you try to pursue something in earnest um, with a kind of seriousness of of um, of purpose. And that is how you evaluate the quality, not whether or not someone actually deeply cares about something or is invested in something. And so so I've always tried to sort of be um, rigorous, but also transparent about the stakes. Well, um, part of that, I think. Uh, is for me has become a kind of vulnerability. I I want to write in ways that not only help people think, but also can move them emotionally and resonate uh, deeply. And frankly, in the midst of COVID, uh, I, as someone who had lived with chronic diseases for over half of my life, felt a, a deep grief, not just obviously for all the people who lost their lives, but for people who were experiencing long COVID and the shock to one's system of no longer having sort of the same kind of sort of freedom uh, and comfort in one's body. And I knew what that felt like because I had been there and I thought this is a time to tell this story um, and to tell the story in a way that was brutally honest, which is that there's aspects of it, you know, we, most of the, you know, we, we hear these stories and often people, they're stories of triumph. Well, they're not all stories of triumph. There's something that is deeply uh, unstable uh, and, and, um, and, and unanticipated about living with, with illness. And uh, I, I just thought I had something to offer. And so I have decided that, you know, um, vulnerability is is an important tool for uh, for the writer who wants to actually connect with readers um, and and maybe contribute something meaningful. So uh, I've tried to embrace it, even though it is often terrifying to do so. The book is just coming out, but it was excerpted in the New York Times. What kind of response did you get? You know, I got uh, it was it, the the response is actually hard because. People are so generous and lovely and say that it resonates with them and it's meaningful for them. Um, but I, I feel so much for the people who, who it, it elicits storytelling. And, you know, it's sort of like, even if you know what they've been through, you hate to hear about people suffering. And then there's the other part where there are people who, you know, we have this kind of cult of wellness in this society where people say, oh, you're just doing the wrong thing. You need to do A, B, C, and D as though healthfulness is is a consequence of a virtue and virtuous living and so there's also that which is is which feels kind of kind of um kind of gross sometimes but you know i know people mean well but there's a way that we can be very inconsiderate to those with um chronic illness so i actually try to use that as an opportunity to also do some education about how to be with people who are ill more sen- in a more sensitive uh uh feeling way mm. Well, 
a lot of the work that you do that we began this conversation you're describing, um, including this archive that you are working with Professor Jarvis Givens on, the Black uh, Teacher Archive, looking at journals and materials of what were called colored teacher associations. It launched last month at uh, Harvard. But all of that is in the crosshairs of so much, I was going to say negativity, but it's more than that. Um, There are book bans and states passing legislation and um, censorship on what can be said about certain kinds of history. And I wonder how it has impacted your work so far and and how do you fight against it? Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways I have... um it hasn't directly impacted my work, the kind of backlash against, I think, against Black history or the history of any people who've been oppressed. I mean, it really is a kind of rejection of a true complex history of the kind of fundamental tension between the principles of liberty and democracy and the history that we have that this nation started out as a settler colony uh, and a slaveholding nation, right? And so the legacies of all of that are being contested right now, I think because as people are telling fuller, truer stories, um, whether it's about the lives of queer people or black people or indigenous people or immigrant communities, um, there's a fear that about how, how deeply moved the public is. There's a fear that this will actually transform people's ethics, right? That exact point. And so I guess for me, it has, Um, It it has bolstered my commitment to doing that work of telling the stories. I think that the way that we fight against it is actually um, indeed an act and commitment. That is, we we continue to do the reading. um, We continue to do the study. We refuse um, to allow school boards to limit, you know, in, in really one or two people, right, who are protesting school boards to limit our, our moral imaginations. And my inspiration is often thinking about, you know, in the context of enslavement, there was a prohibition on enslaved people learning to read that could, where one could even be, you know, punished with death. And yet, at the point of emancipation, they found that a critical body of enslaved people had learned to read, right? So we have this legacy of people who are who were committed to knowledge in the face of incredible brutality and cruelty. Um, and that's was carried through in the teacher associations uh, and the like. And so um, I just, I feel like the point is to hold on to that tradition and to allow it to proliferate and to share it with as many communities as possible. Well, now you get a bigger platform because here are the fun questions um, about winning the MacArthur Genius Grant. So what I love about talking to you all is that you just have your head down doing your work. You're not looking around to see who's paying attention. You're just doing your work. Um, and then they, they you know, anoint you, and it's just so wonderful. So we love the when and where stories. Where were you? How did you hear? I was um, sitting in the corner of my bedroom where I have my little um, computer set up, and I was writing, which is what I <laughs> Um, yeah, and the only reason I answered the phone is because it was a Chicago number. I'm not very good at answering the phone, but it's a Chicago number. And so I was like, oh, it must be someone I know, right? Um, a friend or family member. Um, and so it was extraordinary. Just amazing, amazing feeling. Were you surprised? Totally <laughs> surprised. And I, you know, I really, I, I know this, if this can sound kind of po- Pollyanna-ish, but it's really true. I am so grateful every day 
that I get to do work that feels like it is meaningful um, and that it speaks to my soul. I understand that that's not something that everybody is afforded or even most people are afforded. So I feel so incredibly fortunate just to be able to do work that's meaningful for me. I So this is like, uh, you know, an embarrassment of uh, of riches of joy. Um, so surprised, but also and grateful, but also like I, I'm just grateful for the life I get to live. Well, you get eight hundred thousand dollars to do it as you do with as you wish. Have you thought about how you plan to use it? I have not, only because I am already so overcommitted with the projects that I have coming. <laughs> I mean, which is, you know, which is great. Like I have, but I have a lot of exciting things um, that I'm trying to do over the next couple of years. So I'm just going to try to, you know, take my time. I will say this. When I remember when I was a little girl, Bob Moses, who's a family friend, being, um, getting the MacArthur and then creating the Algebra Project and how amazing and transformative that was. I was a kid and I, like, I, I was watching it and I, it just made me think that it's so important to be deliberate you know, about what you create. And so I hope that I can follow in his footsteps and in the footsteps of so many others who have taken the opportunity to do something that is is for the benefit of, of, of the world. Bob Moses was a, a very active um, leader in the civil rights movement, in the American civil rights movement. Now, some have said they might do something risky because they can, and you don't have to worry about it. You know, you don't have to appeal to someone who might give you a grant to do a certain thing, and if you go a different direction, oh, well, then you've messed up. Does that appeal to you in any way? Not, you know, I don't, I'm not a risk taker for its own sake, but I do believe in trying to do work that is, um, that is righteous and honest, which does feel risky at this moment in history. There's so much retaliation against truth telling. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I, I hope that my, um, I, and one of the things I said when I got the National Book Award is that I hope that I can maintain the courage of my convictions after experiencing um, a moment of, you know, approval and acclaim, and I, and I hold fast to that. Well, last question. Um, You are already a role model uh, to so many that you don't even know. Now, this platform, of course, puts you on an even bigger uh, stage, and so you'll be a role model to many more. What do you say to the young people looking to you and thinking, wow, you know, could I ever achieve that or what she's done or any words you might have? I mean, the the main message I have is to take your time to learn and to study and to observe. Everything moves so fast today and the attention economy is so brutal and it can make you feel as though you're not doing enough or you're not moving fast enough or you don't have enough recognition. And um, that's just not how doing good and meaningful work works. You know, you do have to take your time. You have to be in your, either in, it can be work that you do in solitude or in community, but, you know, it is the slow work that is the most transformative. And so I'm always telling people, don't be in a rush, allow yourself to figure out what you think and what you feel and to follow your curiosity and your passion and understand that the road to whatever you want to achieve often includes a great deal of disappointment and failure. Um, And the challenge is to maintain your commitment to it, nevertheless. Well, congratulations, Imani Perry. Thank you so much. 
Imani Perry is a professor at Harvard University and one of four local MacArthur Genius Fellows named this year. She is an interdisciplinary scholar and writer who researches the history and culture forged by black Americans in the face of injustice. She joined us as part of our series, The Genius Next Door. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz. Ashley Sobroto is our intern. Our engineer is Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Wednesday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.